Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from lead pastor John Reese. This is a special year because we're spending it walking with Jesus. Not that we don't spend every year that way, but uh, we're, we're focusing on it this year as we work our way through the book of Luke. And today we're going to begin looking at Luke chapter 14, where we're going to encounter Jesus having another meal on the Sabbath with a Pharisee. We're told this in Luke 14, chapter 1. On the Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. You know, certain settings lend themselves to breaking down interpersonal barriers and creating opportunities for meaningful conversation. And and none of them is better than a meal together. I, I love to visit with people over a shared meal. When we were with our, our son and his wife in Atlanta, they took us to a, a Spanish restaurant. And in Spain, uh, fee- meals are really more, about, more than just about food. They're events. It, it, it's something that really carries on for quite a while in the evening. And so you would sit down and they'd bring in several courses. It was like having... Uh, five or six plates of appetizers, but between each plate there were times to just sit and visit and converse, and it's in times like this that that, uh, I have some of my most meaningful conversations in in these leisurely times together. In Spain, mealtime is as much about socializing with friends and neighbors as it is about eating food. A uh, shared meal is, is a, a common communal activity. Uh, it can be a social event where thoughts and experiences and emotions are shared with one another. And like I said, some of my best conversations have happened over meals. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to sit down for a meal with Jesus? <laughs> Wouldn't that be an incredible experience? Have you thought, you know, where would the conversation go? What would he want to talk about? What, what would we want to ask him about? And, and, and you can be sure that if you were having a converse, uh, conversation with Jesus, he would know exactly where to probe in your life to bring issues to the surface that you needed to deal with. And it would be an incredible opportunity for growth. This meal, however, was not a time of growth for the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not looking to Jesus for insight. They had long before this stopped being teachable. They were more about evaluating him than they were about him evaluating them. And instead of learning from this rabbi, they were clashing with him, and their animosity toward him was keeping them from any constructive change in their lives. But Jesus didn't come to earth to make friends. He came to redeem people from their sin, and that included the Pharisees who 
this tenacious hold on their legal traditions kept them from uh, grasping um, from grasping the intent of God's law, which was grace. The Pharisees had wandered away from God's original purpose in giving the law. And so Jesus ate with these Pharisees to bring them home. But they didn't want to have anything to do with what he had to offer. The Pharisees were becoming more and more hostile toward Jesus as time went on. Their spirits were becoming increasingly closed toward him. Notice on this occasion that Jesus is, is right now moving in the highest circles. Uh, we're told that he was invited not just to the home of a Pharisee, but to the home of a prominent Pharisee, one of the chief Pharisees, the King James Bible says. This was one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Very significant person. It's like going to sit down for a meal with the governor. And it was not uncommon for Jews to sit down and have their biggest meal of the week after worshiping together in the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was typical as well for a local teacher to be invited to one of the leader's homes. And and Jesus was invited after the time in the synagogue over to this Pharisee's home for dinner. This invitation, however, was not to honor Jesus, but to discredit him. Luke tells us they were watching Jesus carefully, and and kind of the nuance behind this word watching is that they were lurking or lying wait, wanting to catch him in something. In other words, they were out to get him. And so this morning, we're going to look at today's table conversation that took place in this meal that Jesus had with these Pharisees. This is the third time in the book of Luke that Jesus is invited as a guest to a Pharisee's table. It happened also in Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 11. And on each occasion, Jesus makes things really, really uncomfortable for his host and the people there. He challenges their beliefs and values. John Piper says, there's no evidence I know of that Jesus was ever invited back a second time to a Pharisee's house. (laughs) And it's not hard to see why. It seems like every time he opens his mouth, he undresses somebody's hypocrisy. This morning, we're going to look at this meal, and we're going to look at three things that Jesus confronts in this meal. First of all, we're going to see that, again, like in some of the other meals, he confronts the people about their hypocrisy. We see this starting in verse 2. We're told that there in front of him, when he's coming to this man's house for a meal, was a man suffering from dropsy. Now, once again, Jesus is confronted with human need. This man, we're told, was suffering from dropsy. And dropsy was apparently a medical condition that was characterized by the buildup of excess fluid in the body. This man would have been swollen by the retention of water. Possibly his organs are failing. And whether the man was there because he initiated it or whether the Pharisees used him as bait to trap Jesus, we don't know. We hope he initiated because if he was just used as bait, that's a pretty awful thing. What we do know is that the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely to see what he would do. But Jesus puts them on the defensive before they have a chance to confront him. He turns the tables on him. He 
ask them a question. Apparently, Jesus knew what they were thinking, so we're told in verse 3 that Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts of the law, tell me now, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And the Pharisees quickly realized their dilemma. If they say, yes, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, then they would be breaking one of their sacred traditions. But if, on the other hand, they say, no, it's not okay to heal on the Sabbath, then the people would hear how heartless they were, and they would look bad before the people. The Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, but instead, their merciless legalism is being exposed by Jesus. Realizing that, they were told that they didn't respond. They just remained silent. They didn't answer his question. And so Jesus went ahead and took hold of the man, and Jesus healed him and sent him away. But Jesus wasn't done yet. He comes again, and he says, you know, if, some of you have, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And again, a second time we're told they had nothing to say. If one of their children or animals had fallen into a well, of course they would stop and pull them out of the cistern. They wouldn't hesitate to pull them out on the Sabbath. But if they would do that for a family member, Jesus was saying, you know, or if you do that for an animal, then why don't you have mercy on a man who has a critical disease? You can see where their, their legalism had taken them. Stephen Cole pointed out how often people study the word of God for ammunition against others, but not to apply it to themselves. He shares of the Pharisees in this passage. He says, these men knew their Bibles. They knew the law of Moses frontwards and backwards. They were guardians of the faith, waiting to catch someone else in an error. Their aim in knowing the word of God was not to confront themselves, but to have ammo to use against others. They were watching Jesus closely, but they weren't watching themselves closely. They were waiting for him to violate their rules so that they could pounce on him, but they weren't applying the law to themselves. And Cole says, you see that all the time in churches. He gives one example. He says, I've seen husbands who use the word like a club against their wives. They say, she doesn't submit to me as the head of the home. And I always say to them, do you know the Bible never commands you to be the head of your wife? And they sputter, what do you mean? Of course it does. It says it real clearly. He says, but no, it doesn't. He says, the Bible instructs the wife to recognize their husband as the head. But when it comes to the husband, the command is this. The command is to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the command that's directed at you. He says, so I'll ask these husbands... How have you been sacrificing your time and selfish interest to serve your wife and children? This is what you should be talking about. (laughs) He says, these hypocritical husbands want to lord it over their wives and children, abusing the authority that God gives to the husbands to bless and protect their families. They don't want to lay down their selfish ways in service to their wives and children as the scriptures command them. They're using the word of God as ammo against others not to confront their own sinful selfishness. That's what we do all the time. That's what the Pharisees were doing. 
They were doing it with the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day was never meant just to be a standard by which we measure others. The Lord's Day was never meant to be a day to gain spiritual merit with God by just rigorously keeping it. The Lord's Day was given to us to love God and to show mercy to others. The Lord's Day is a gift to us. It's not just a heartless regulation. Tim, Tim Buckeye, uh, a couple weeks ago when he was talking about the, past, the Sabbath, which was a very excellent message. I really appreciated it. But he said this. He said, the Sabbath is a gift of God to humanity. It promotes rest so that we can understand that it is God who is working and accomplishes his purposes. The Sabbath teaches us to receive rather than to strive. Think about it. It's an opportunity to show that we really trust that God's the one who's doing something. Sabbath teaches us grace. Spiritual disciplines like Sabbath keeping are supposed to be a means of grace intended to promote intimacy with Jesus. God never intended the Sabbath regulations just to be about a way of earning favor with him. Sabbath rules were meant to be a gift from the heart of God. The Sabbath is intended to be a day in which we break from our labors We turn away from our work in order to orient our lives around the things of God. The Sabbath is to be more than just a day of play. It's more than just about playing golf or watching football or fishing. It's to be about a day to love God. It's about a day to serve God by loving other people and showing mercy to other people. It's a gift because this is one of the the best things that we can be given in life, a day to concentrate on knowing and serving and loving God. The the Puritan C.J. Ryle put it this way, the Sabbath was made for man, for his benefit, not his injury, for his advantage, not his hurt. The interpretation of God's law respecting the Sabbath was never intended to be strained so far as to intervene with charity or love and kindness and the real needs of human nature. Sometimes we we view the laws of God like just oppressive things. And the law of the Sabbath can be like a prison. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't go here, you can't go there. But Jesus says it's a gift. It's a day given to prioritize our lives around what's ultimately important. It's not just meant to be a list of restrictions designed to keep us from enjoying life. Too many of us define ourselves by our work without realizing that we have made work an idol. We derive our meaning in life from our work and our our worth comes from our work and God wants us to define ourselves in terms of our relationship with him, not our work. And so he set aside a day of the week for us to focus on him, a day to, to rest and be renewed spiritually, a day to worship him and fellowship with others, a day to acknowledge that work, while important, is not what sustains us or gives our life's meanings. God sustains us. God provides. God gives our life's purpose. Our lives do not depend on our jobs and our paychecks and our upward mobility or any other material things. Our lives depend on God. And when we don't have time to give God a day of our life, we're really saying our work is more important to us than that. If we can't take a day off to to focus on the things of God, could it mean that we're valuing something above God? 
And not only are we valuing something above God, but it means we're also trusting something more than God in our life. Honoring God by keeping a Sabbath means trusting God with your life. If you think everything's going to fall apart, if you take a day off, then you have a trust issue. You've given too much weight to what you do and too little weight to what God does for you. God wants us to give him a day of our week just like he wants us to give him the first fruits of our income. Doing these things show that we're not slaves to our works. We're not serving our possessions, that, that our security isn't found in either our work or our money. It shows us that we value God above these things and we trust God above these things. But something's really wrong when we make the Sabbath mean it's a day that you can't do things to show kindness and love toward other people. We've totally missed the intent of God's law. When Jesus got done with this little discussion about the Sabbath that exposed their wrong use of the Sabbath, he goes on to address another problem. He's not content just to stop there. He's been observing people at this meal. And he confronts the people about their pride. We're told that in verses 7 and following that when Jesus noticed how the guests picked places of honor at the table, he told them a parable. In other words, they were pushing to get the best seats. Remember, they're at really a significant person's house. The parable goes like this. When somebody invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the less important place. In other words, you have to get up from the seat you sat down in and, and give it to this other person. But when you're invited... Take the lowest place so that your host comes. He will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of your fellow guest. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Here are all these people at this meal jockeying for positions. They want to be recognized. They want to be valued for what they have to offer. The Pharisees had this insatiable desire to be elevated in the sight of men. They loved places of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. But Jesus warned them that grabbing the best seats could backfire if somebody more important comes into the room. In that case, in humiliation, you'll have to get up in front of other people, yield your seat to the person who's more important. And so the principle is wait till you're invited to take more important seat. Don't just assume you deserve it. Now, it's important to understand that this parable is about more than just etiquette. Jesus, as he's doing in most of his parables, is giving them a picture of God's kingdom. You know, we, we tend to have an exaggerated sense of our own importance. We, we feel we deserve more recognition than we, what we get. We believe our role is more important than what really is. We, and we're upset if, when our contribution goes unnoticed. I mean, what kind of leader defers to others instead of promoting themselves? But Jesus tells us on another occasion, whoever wants to become great among you will become the servant. And Peter tells us that one of the traits of 
godly leaders is humility. All of you who serve each other in humility, Peter says, all of you serve each other in humility for God opposes the proud, but he favors the humble. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And then at the right time, if he chooses, he will lift you up and give you honor. In God's kingdom, it's humility, not arrogance. It's valued. And the point is, you shouldn't seek positions of honor, but you should let God decide what positions you should have. Those who want recognition, appreciation, are self-focused and proud. You know, as sinners saved by grace, that's not appropriate for us. We shouldn't be thinking that we need special treatment. We, sh- we should understand anything we have is grace. A verse that I go back to over and over again and think about often is 1 Corinthians 4, 7, that asks, when it asks this, he says, what do you have that God hasn't given you? <laughs> and if everything you have is from God, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? <clears throat> when Jesus tells the dinner guests that they should seek the lowest seats, he's suggesting that they should view themselves as unworthy of special ignition. Everybody before God should feel that the lowest place is the proper place for them. These people wanted to be noticed by others to gain honor for themselves, but Jesus warned them that in his kingdom it's the way of humility that leads to the ultimate reward. After this talk about humility and it's interesting to think through what Christian humility is really like but after Jesus has talked to these leaders about humility he turns from the guests and focusing on their behavior to the host's motivation inviting the guest. He's been talking about the guests fighting for the good seats. Now he turns his, his sights on the host and he says this. He says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, you may invite, they may invite you back so that you will be repaid. In other words, don't do it just so you get something back in return. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, if if you do things for people who can't return, do something for you in return, that's a, a good deed that's not expecting something reciprocated. It's just a good deed for the sake of being a good deed. And, and Jesus says, your reward's coming for that. You'll be rewarded. But normal society works on the basis of mutual obligation. The reward for a good deed is to expect a good deed in return, and the reward for hospitality is to expect to be shown hospitality in return. And in this passage, the, the, the repetition of the word repay emphasizes this reciprocal expectation that the Pharisees had. Three times Jesus says, uses the word repay in this passage. But God's kingdom is a kingdom of grace. And grace is a free gift. It it doesn't have strings attached. It it doesn't give with expectation of a return. 
So when you invite someone into your homes, don't just invite your friends. Invite those who don't have anything to give in return. And your self-denial for the poor and the lonely and those separated from their families will bring you blessing when Christ returns. Again, Jesus points out where these people are missing it. Now, you can imagine it's getting pretty tense at this table. (laughs) And um, someone kind of blurts something out right here, and and, uh, I think he might have been trying to cut the ice, or, or maybe he's trying to identify with what Jesus has just said. He's been talking about a banquet, but in verse 15, one of the people at the table heard him say this, and he said, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Let's, let's get away from pointing fingers right now. Let's talk about the coming kingdom of God and the feast that's going to be there. Blessed is the man who's going to be there at the feast. And Jesus takes this statement and uses it as an opportunity to confront them one more time. He responds, this man, by saying, not everybody who thinks they're going to be at this, the banquet in the coming kingdom is going to actually be there. And Jesus tells them who's going to actually be there. Jesus talks to them about their competing loyalties, and, and some people show by their choices that they're really more committed to their kingdoms than Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus does this through a parable, a parable that shows the bigness of the heart of God in reaching out to people and the grace of God, but at the same time, the disregard people give God. We're told in verses 16 and following that Jesus replied this when this man had said this about, hey, we're all going to be at the kingdom of heaven soon and partake in this glorious banquet that's coming. Jesus says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell all those who had been invited, come, everything's ready now. So first they got the first invitation and then when the day arrived, they were reminded that the, the, the meal is ready. But even if they had given an indication the first time around that they were coming, when it really came down to the time it was supposed to happen, they began to make excuses about why they couldn't come. So the story starts off by telling us about the gracious invitation of the king. God gives us a gracious invitation. But often it's met with indifference on the part of the people to who the invitation goes to. In Matthew's version of this same story, we're told that the parable is a picture of the kingdom of God. Matthew 22 says this, the kingdom of God can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. It's it's about a, a king preparing a feast for his son. The, the, the coming supper of the lamb, right? The wedding supper of the lamb. When the banquet's ready, he sent his servants, we're told in Matthew, to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. In Matthew's version, uh, this, this uh, notice goes out more than once. Think of this, this great feast given by this wealthy, prominent man in honor 
of his son would have been the social event of the year. For some people, it might have been the highlight of their lives. No one invited to a banquet like this would ever have dreamed of refusing to come, but the invited guests here do not come for a variety of reasons. Biblical scholar Leon Morris calls this parable a parable of excuses. The invitee's refusal to come is a huge insult to the king. After all, it's in honor of his son. But in spite of this, the king is so gracious that he offers them a, a repeat invitation, we're told in Matthew. So he sent out another, other servants to tell them, hey, the feast is prepared. The bulls and fattened calf have been killed. Everything is ready. Come to the banquet. So they get a second invitation, even after they've already snubbed him. But the guests he invited ignored them and went their own way, one to his farm and another to his business. Luke, going back to the book of Luke now, he, he kind of describes a little more specifically the excuses they give for not coming. And their excuses center around three things. Their property, their commerce, and their relationships. First, their property. The first one says, you know, I'd come, but I just bought a field. I, I have to go see it. Please excuse me. I just made a purchase. I acquired more land. And that's where my thoughts are right now. I have to go check this out. He puts his real estate dealings ahead of this invitation of the king. Another says, I just bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm out on my way to try them out. <laughs> to try them out. Uh, please excuse me. This man's occupation or business dealings are put before the invitation of the king. He's, he, he's, he's got this new equipment, this new tractor. <laughs> he wants to try it out, make sure it works good. Another man says, I just got married. I can't come. This man let his love for his family hinder him from accepting the king's invitation. Instead of saying, hey, I'm going to bring my new wife with me to this incredible experience, this incredible banquet. Instead, he says, my focus here now is on this, my, my relationships. I can't come. And all of the invited guests have an attachment that they can't let go of. That keeps them from responding to the king's invitation. And it's these earthly attachments that keep them from having a place at the banquet. And the king is ticked. Verse 21, we're told the servants came back and reported this to the master. And when the owner of the house heard this, he became angry and he ordered his servants, go out quickly into the streets and alleys and, and town and bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered we have done. So they've gone out and done that, but there's still room. And then he says, go further. Go out, and, out of the town now. Go into the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. And then this kind of frightening verse and I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. A number of years ago, I ran across a contemporary parable about a great party. In this parable, there's a man by the name of Morty Zane who's a very, very, very wealthy man. 
And every year, this multi-billionaire would have a birthday party that was second to none. Each year, his family, as well as his principal executives in his companies, would take over the entire floor of the Fairmont Hotel at the top of Knob Hill in San Francisco. And everybody who was somebody was invited to these lavish celebrations. People whose names you would know because they're such significant people in our culture made this party a given in their busy schedules. They always attended. Well, following Morty's wife's death, he lived a lonely existence for several years. But that ended when he asked Cindy, the woman who cut his hair, to be his bride. And Morty's friends were shocked by his, the choice of his bride. Cindy didn't run in the same circles as Morty's other acquaintances. She was a simple working woman trying hard to survive on minimum wage salary. And Cindy, unlike most gold diggers, didn't aspire to become part of her husband's circle. Actually, after she got married, she continued to cut hair because even though she was an incredibly wealthy woman now, she wanted to maintain her relationships with her friends. So she just continued doing what she had done before. Cindy got Morty to come into her world. She got him to wear flannel shirts and jeans, and they went bowling together, and they went to movies, and they went out for hamburgers, things that he had never done before. And Morty had never had so much fun in his life. He loved Cindy. The next year when it came time for Mort's party, Morty wanted to use the party to reconcile his family and friends with his new wife. He wanted to show them what a wonderful person Cindy was. And the invitations went out as before, only this time Morty added that this year's party would be the most lavish he had ever had, for it would be in honor of his new wife, Cindy. And Cindy, they were informed, was going to help plan the activities for the evening so it was sure to be fun. But the people, upon receiving the invitation, didn't find Cindy's new role very encouraging. And, and one by one, they began to make excuses for not coming to the party. The socialites withdrew first. And a typical reason they gave for not being able to attend this year was... Uh, a voicemail that came from Everett Briston, and, and this is just one reason that they were given. But Everett said this, he said, Jenny and I would love to make it to your party, Mort, but this year we're sorry that we'll be unable to make it. We planned on being there, but Comega's stock meeting was scheduled for earlier that week, and we really can't break away right now. The distant relatives withdrew next. Mort's nephew, Bob, called and said that he and Nancy had just moved into a new home and the person who had laid the towel in their home had done it wrong and they were going to come back and fix it and they wanted to make sure they were going to be there when they came. They didn't know exactly when they were going to make it back so they wouldn't be able to come to the party this year because they wanted to get their towel in right and they wanted to make sure they didn't make a mistake on it again. Then his children and grandchildren and business executives all began to share reasons why they couldn't come, other family events that would con conflict with Morty's party that year. And Mort and Cindy had already reserved the Fairmont's best rooms and the ballroom, and they had scheduled and catered a party for 250 people. 
And Cindy was dejected, and she went to Morton. She says, We're going to, we have only 35 guests coming. What are we going to do? We've planned for 250, and we only have only 35. I guess we have to cancel this party. And Mort looked at her like, no way. We're not going to cancel this party. And he said, Cindy, invite your friends. So Cindy invited every acquaintance she had. One of the invitations went to a halfway house where the recipient had to request a chaperone, a chaperone to be able to attend. But with all of Cindy's friends, the list was only up to 73 people. So Mort says, I want more people. Go into the streets, find more people. So they went out and they worked the streets, asking everybody they met to come to Mort's party. And even some from the rescue mission and the homeless shelters were invited until the guest list was full. And that night, people used to eating leftover pizza out of cardboard boxes, feasted on a seven-course meal with the best food they'd ever imagined, served by waiters in tuxedos. Wine flowed freely while they danced the night away to music played by the San Francisco Orchestra. The highlight of the evening came when it was time for dessert and Morty stood up and asked for everybody's attention. And he said to this unusual crowd gathered at the party, this is a moment I've been waiting for all my life. A great cake was then brought out and the people were asked to wait until everybody was served. And then Morty said, this cake represents my business, my businesses, the businesses I've spent my life building. This to me is my sweat and blood. And today I'm going to share it with all of you. Each of you who came to my party will go away with dividends of a thousand shares of Zane Enterprises. At my death, you will control the majority shares of my business and you can sell them or keep them or do whatever you want with them. He continued, he says, I invited the rightful heirs to this most important party in honor of Cindy. But they had other priorities tonight and so they begged out. He says, I'm glad at least some of my relatives came, a few of them. Congratulations, you who came. You will receive what you've long awaited. And for the rest of you, you are now my adopted sons and daughters, my heirs. Enjoy it. It's a gift. It's free. And nothing has made me, ever made me happier than to share this with you. As the guests departed in shocked silence, one relative timidly approached Morty and asked about the other relatives. Did he plan on giving them shares as well? And Morty says, it's gone. It's all gone. They missed it. He says, they did? He said, yes, they did, and it was their choice. You can see where... A parable like this is, is a picture of the kingdom of God. You can, you can even apply it to what the Jews were doing, the rightful heirs of the kingdom, when they didn't make room for Jesus, right? But it's a picture of all the people who, who when given the invitation of Jesus to come be a part of his kingdom, be a part of what he's doing, have something else crowded out. The invitation to share in God's kingdom is the most incredible gift a person could ever be given. A kingdom in honor of God's son. A kingdom of joy and feasting. 
But too often, our earthly affections, our possessions, and our relationships become the priorities in our life that crowd Jesus' calling to us out. And we don't make room for Jesus, and we don't seek first his kingdom. The temporary crowds out the eternal heavenly treasures are bypassed for earthly obsessions, and because of the pull of our worlds on us, we don't seek first the kingdom of God. The things that sidetrack us might not be bad, but they're no, in no way comparable to what we're being offered. Here, the good is definitely the enemy of the best. I don't know about you, but I don't want anything to divert, divert me from the call of God on my life. Not the requirements of my work, not the necessities of my family, or a desire for worldly goods, I want God's presence. I want his love above all else. Jesus says, this parable gives you an idea of what the kingdom of my father looks like. This is what I want my church to be like. It's like this banquet in my father's house, and my father's house is big. It's really big, yet it isn't full. So go out and invite other people to come with you. There's room. And if somebody turns you down, find others. And even those who are a million miles away from God right now, encourage them, compel them to come. Make this party a place where grace flows free. I want to close this message with a single sentence, and that is, what is keeping you today from following Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we understand that we're being given an incredible invitation to join a kingdom that is beyond description. We are being invited to have fellowship with you. And too often, Lord, we let things that are so secondary in terms of importance crowd out the call of God in our lives. Heavenly Father, may we be the ones who say, yes, I'm coming. And we, may we be the ones who bring others with us. You're a God of grace, offering an invitation to everyone, whosoever will may come. Amen. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.